trust in money remains the bedrock of stability. The soul of money is trust. I, I think we are not paying sufficient attention to the law of unintended consequences. In the immortal words of the doors, the time to hesitate is through. Luke Mikic, what's going on? Not much, dude. Just another day here in paradise in El Salvador. What's good with you? Yeah, same thing, man. Although I'm not in El Salvador, obviously. Um, how did you discover Bitcoin? That is a journey, my friend. Uh, so I think the first day I heard about Bitcoin would have been in 2017. I was in the car. Um, I was driving home from my uh, job that I had at a, uh, I was a barista at the time, 2017. Um, I was a barista in my spare time when I was at university. Um, and I remember I was driving home, must have been a Saturday or a Sunday, and I had the uh, I had the radio on. So before Bitcoin, I used to watch TV, I used to listen to the radio, I used to be uh, engaged with all of the social programming Staying and the propaganda current. that we, yeah, <laughs> yeah, with, with the current thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> So I was uh, on the radio there and they talked about this thing, this digital money that had a finite supply. Um, they were obviously talking about the price of this thing going parabolic because uh, for most people who don't know, in 2017, the price of Bitcoin went from something like $1,000 to 20000 all in the space of 12 months. So obviously these charlatans on the mainstream uh, normie kind of uh, radio, they were talking about the price. But at the very end of the segment, they mentioned a very small thing that caught my interest. They said there's a finite amount of these Bitcoins. They said there's only 21 million of them. And I thought, hey, that is, that's something. I remember I pulled, I pulled off the road when I heard about Bitcoin. Um, I was driving home. I pulled off the highway and I just kind of stopped there to listen to the rest of the radio segment. And from there, that's when the Bitcoin rabbit hole began. Um, I, um, I consumed as much Bitcoin content as I could after hearing about Bitcoin I went for a stage where I was getting minimal sleep for two, the first two or three weeks that I had actually heard about Bitcoin. I was listening to Bitcoin podcasts every night as I was going to sleep. And as most people will know, it's when you start listening to Bitcoin and thinking about it late at night, it can be a little bit difficult to actually put your mind to rest. So I was listening to Andreas Antonopoulos and Max Kaiser for hours and hours and hours upon end as I was sleeping, um, just trying to learn about Bitcoin. Um so long story short, I come to the realization that it was a pretty big deal and potentially the biggest technological innovation in human history. So bigger than the internet, bigger than the automobile, bigger than steel, bigger than railroads, bigger than the printing press and even fire itself. So I thought, hey, I want to dedicate some more time to learning about this thing. So at the time I was studying a double major in maths and chemistry at university, um, and I had a uh, quote-unquote gap year in 2018 to uh, learn about Bitcoin. Um, I think at the time, um, I, was, I moved out of home when I was 17. So at the time, I didn't really have the luxury to dedicate all my time to learning about Bitcoin. So I had to start a personal training business on the side to have some income to support myself 
while I freed up a little bit of time to learn about Bitcoin. Uh, more time than I had doing a double double major at uni. That was like two full-time jobs. Um, so anyway, so 2018, had a gap year. Um, and um, from that gap year, I just never went back to university. I continued running my own um, personal training business. So I haven't had a nine-to-five since I was 18, and I've been learning about Bitcoin ever since. That's, that's incredible. I'm, I'm really curious to learn how you intuited the concept of scarcity. You know, you're driving around, you're driving in your car, you, you hear that finance supply line, which is interestingly enough, like the fact that the radio personality or whoever even just mentioned that, you know, they generally don't do that nowadays. But uh, I guess this thing was pretty nascent or still even more nascent than it is now. And um, like, how, how did you intuit that concept of scarcity and pick up on that importance of the finite supply? So scarcity is the killer app of Bitcoin. I think the fact that it's the only coin out of the 22,000 that actually has a finite supply um, is the reason that I believe Bitcoin is king in the entire space. Like, I don't think you can recreate scarcity. We live in a world where um, there's no scarcity. There is no scarcity. Our money is being inflated by 10 or 20 or in some cases 30, 50 or 100% per year, depending on where you live around the world. Um, and there's nothing out there that's even mildly comparable to um, Bitcoin scarcity. So I think in 2017, 18, um, another thing that kind of primed me to understand Bitcoin was I was trying to get ahead. So I had no money at the time. I was a, I was a little um, homeless bum pretty much at university trying to make ends meet. So I was in the rat race trying to make money thinking, okay, how do I retire early? How do I make the most amount of money now? I was very kind of entrepreneurial from a young age. Um, and I, I came to the conclusion that property investing was the killer app in Australia because you know what we're told in Australia, mm-hmm. as safe as houses, you know, safe houses house. only go up. Up forever. Yeah. Up forever, that's what, they, <laughs> that's what they tell us. That's what they tell us. So I thought, um, so I was obviously, I was saving as much money as I could at the time. I was living on like 70 cent loaves of bread or, you know, really cheap five kilo bags of rice and canned tuna. Terrible I was doing diet. everything. Terrible this, diet. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. Fiat food to the max. Uh, so I was I was saving as many pennies as, uh, as I could to save up for a deposit for a home because I come to the realization that every, uh, every property market I looked at, whether it was in uh, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, they were all going up by 10 or 15% a year. So I came up with the idea, okay, I'm going to save 30 or 40,000 up for a deposit. I'm going to buy a home. And then I'm just going to watch that appreciate by 10 or 15% per year. And then I'm just going to pull out, you know, 50,000 bucks of equity, buy a second home. Yeah. Yeah and build a property portfolio. So I, I I was primed to understand Bitcoin because I was trying to figure out why property prices continued to go up and up and up in ever. And it wasn't until 2018 when I started learning about Bitcoin that I learned about fiat money. I learned about fractional reserve banking and I learned about how every single country all around the world left the gold standard in 1971. So for anyone who doesn't know um, we've pretty much been living on a gold-backed financial system or a gold-backed monetary system in one way, shape, or form for the past 5,000 years. And in 1971, that was the first time in history that every single country around the world 
decided to de-peg or de-tether their local currency from uh, gold. So what that meant was it just enabled our governments, uh, well, it gave our governments free will to simply print money out of thin air um, and print as much money as they want and artificially lower interest rates. Um, so that is why prices of houses and food and goods and services has exploded um, since 1971. It's because our money's broken. And I, I argue our money today is more broken than it ever has been in 5,000 years. Um, so that's kind of, that was a little bit of a long answer. I'm kind of forgetting the original question, but that's, I was primed to understand uh, Bitcoin's scarcity because I knew there was something wrong. I just couldn't quite figure out what it was or what was making uh, the prices of houses go up and up and up into perpetuity and grow at 10 to 15% per year. Yeah, right. It, it's, it's a curious, there's a, there's a curious um, uh, connection there because I, I had a similar sort of, um, I guess, journey in that I was looking at understanding what, what it meant to get a mortgage and and was also trying to figure out like why a house price is going up all the time. I don't understand. Um, and you know, what's really interesting is that once you click that the denominator is actually broken and it's actually going down in value over time and yeah, the house's prices is going up and everything else is going up, but it's actually your purchasing power is actually dipping quite significantly. And that's a very, um, mind expanding thing to think about and actually to comprehend is it's not the houses that are going up constantly. It's the dollar or the money that you're trying to buy that house in is actually losing purchasing power. So, you know, when you were saving up for your um, deposit, for your mortgage and house prices within, you know, a year, two years, they're going up 10, 15% that's an extra 10, 15% you now have to go and work harder to save, to get up to that next level to make sure that that deposit and the street that you want that you're looking at or whatever is, is, is actually going to get you there. Right. hundred percent. Let's add some color to that because I think that's the most important point to understand for somebody entering the Bitcoin space and they're trying to wrap their head around what's going on in our overly complicated financial system. Because to understand the fact that, hang on a minute, home prices, they're not actually getting more valuable every year. Uh, what's actually happening is the currency that you're measuring the value of that home in is just losing value every single year. When I try to explain that to new people, they typically have a little bit of a hard time wrapping their head around it. Um, I've actually, I made, it, I made a few tweets uh, last year um, and it's actually just measuring the price of uh, property prices in instead of using Australian dollars, you actually measure the price of property in terms of gold. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting about that is if you look at the price um, of an average Sydney home, I think it was something like $21,000 in the year 1972 or 1973. And today, obviously, the average median home in Sydney is like well over one and a half million dollars. I don't have a millionaire nowadays. Yeah. You know, exactly. So no one is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And if you look at the growth of the average Sydney home between 2008 and 2022, like it's up I, again, I don't have the exact figures on hand, but it's like three or four or five hundred percent 
It's up like 3x, something ridiculous since 2008 in Australian dollars. So Mm. when you're measuring the price of a home in Australian dollars, it looks like it's up 300% since 2008. But what's really interesting is if you measure the price of that home in a money that's not actually having its supply changed much, like gold, the price of an average home um, in Sydney is actually down 60% since 2008. And it's the exact same. Yeah, 60%. When you measure it in gold, in terms of a unit that isn't having its supply exponentially debased. Um, It's actually a very similar story in Melbourne. I believe uh, the price of an average home in Melbourne is down something like 50% when measured in gold from its 2008 peak. And it's the same thing again in Brisbane. Um, So just really driving that point home to a new person listening in, I think that's something important that I just wanted to double click on. Mm. Um, if, If the price of your home is going up by you know, 10 or 15% every year, which could be like $50,000. It doesn't necessarily mean the home is getting any better. It's just the fact that your money is being debased. And if the money continues to be debased at an even faster, even more rapid rate, you could watch home prices increase by 25, 30, 35% per year. Um, But you could actually still be losing purchasing power if the supply of the money is being expanded at a faster rate at say 50% or 60% per year. Um, so yeah, that's a, just something I wanted to double click on there. No, it's a good point, man. And and I mean, that it isn't isolated only to Australia too. It, 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 this is a global phenomenon. You, it's happening in Canada. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in the UK, elsewhere in Europe, etc. Um, is, is it, you know, but I, I think we have this weird culture in Australia where, yeah, you buy a house and then you tap, tap your equity, you use it kind of like a savings account because your savings account gives you, well, I don't know, like I remember chucking a turn, turn deposit a few years ago and getting 0.4% or something to that effect, which was, um, you know, <laughs> pretty bad if you, uh, if you consider the inflation rate. But, um, the other thing is when you're considering your house prices going up and let's say, you know, you're, you're up net net $50,000, your maintenance costs are eating into that and the money that it costs to get a laborer or to, for the laborer to get those materials to use in the repair costs, the maintenance costs, things like this. Um, your energy bills, just like general day-to-day living, even just the food that you're bringing into the home is also going up. So it's actually technically eating into that $50,000. So by the end of it, and even if you were to sell it, I mean, you know, how much are you actually going to make out of that $50,000? How much are you in the clear? What's that clear profit after taxes and all the rates and everything else that you have to pay uh, to get the home uh, saleable, you know, you're kind of left with very, very little. They're all great points. Um, I, I cop a little bit of flack on Twitter because I'm actually, uh, I, I aggressively, uh, call out housing because I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners out there who still think homes are a good investment. And I actually call real estate shitcoin. <laughs> I actually, uh, I don't like real estate for a number of the reasons you just mentioned. Um, obviously capital gains tax. And I think something really important to watch in the 2020s is 
as the government or as the state becomes more and more bankrupt, they're going to become more and more tyrannical. So they're going to look at these options um, of trying to raise tax revenue to deal with the enormous debt burden that they have around the world. Um, so that's like when I when I st- even start talking about economics or real estate or any asset class, I think it's important that people understand that governments all around the world today have more debt than they have had ever in human history. So today we have more debt as a government than we did leading into World War II. Um, so there's a, there's a really interesting stat from, um, from a, a financial firm called Hirschman Capital. They looked back at the past 220 years of financial uh, data and history, and they found that um, there was 52 occasions that a government reached 130% debt to GDP or higher. And on 51 of those occasions, that government, that reached 130% debt to GDP, defaulted within 15 years of reaching that 130% figure. And the one country who hasn't defaulted on their debt yet is Japan. And obviously, Japan today is having a currency crisis um, due to the enormous 260% debt to GDP that the Japanese government has. Yeah, that's right, 260%. 260%. Outrageous. Maybe uh, just a nice little detail here because I I constantly can't figure out in my brain how Japan has been able to do this for such a long time. I mean, they had that massive boom in the 80s with their technological exports, Sony, you know, all of that kind of stuff, all all the tech that they were manufacturing and and, uh, exporting to the world. And then, you know, like the I was thinking I was watching some documentary, I can't remember where... um, Oh, princes of the yen. princes of the yen that was it yeah and yeah. and they and they were talking about like just just the park the, the like a little square meter in the park was like just a ludicrous amount of money i i, I couldn't if i said it it would probably be under but it would sound it was, like it, it was over <laughs> it was worth more than the entire state of california and california is the most economic productive state in the united states yeah it's basically an entire country unto itself really it carries the can for like what fifty percent of the entire GDP of, of the whole country or something. I'm not sure if it's fifty, but it's very high. It's it is huge. High. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so but how do you, do you know how Japan have been able to get away with this money printing, this yield curve control? And I'm I'm throwing out words that maybe new listeners may not fully comprehend, but the point is manipulation of money. And now they've got this two hundred and sixty percent. What is it? Debt to income ratio yeah. uh yeah. how are they how have they been able to kick this can down the road for such a long time they've destroyed the free market in japan they've absolutely obliterated the free market uh the bank of japan the boj i believe they own 70 percent of the entire stock market so that they also own something like 60 to 70 percent of the entire japanese uh, government bond market. So what they're doing is the central bank is literally just printing Japanese yen out of the wazoo and they're just buying absolutely everything to, to prevent it from crashing because nobody wants to buy Japanese government bonds because they're so indebted. Nobody wants to buy Japanese stocks um, because they're, uh, they've had such a big bubble burst. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure the Japanese stock market, the Nikkei, it's still actually beneath its 1989 peak. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact year that that bubble burst in Japan, but 
Um, it still hasn't actually gotten above that peak. Um, so essentially, um, but a reason that Japan has been able to kick that can for so long and the reason that Japan is the one exception out of those 52 um, countries who've been able to escape um, a, a debt default uh, due to a number of reasons, actually a net exporting country. Um, so they, um, they simply produce more than they consume. Um, so that's a positive for Japan. Um, they also own a lot of foreign assets um, around the world. So that gives them a little bit of a healthy buffer in times of stress. Um, and their population are actually a population of savers. So they actually save money. And that's an, an anomaly here in the 21st century because nobody has any savings. Um, but Japan, it kind of looks as if they're entering that crisis period now. Um, because as central banks around the world have been raising rates, um, so in the US, I think they got their rates above 4%, Japan obviously can't raise interest rates um, because they have so much government debt. So if the government, so if the central bank raised interest rates in Japan, well, <laughs> the Japanese government has a debt to GDP ratio of 260%. So higher interest rates means a government has to pay more money on its mm -hmm. interest repayments. So that's why Japan has been unsuccessful in raising interest rates in 2022. And what you've seen is people are starting to wake up to the fact that they're a dead zombie economy and they're fleeing to get their money out of the Japanese yen um, as it's been printed into oblivion by the, um, the Bank of Japan over there as they try to buy bonds to suppress the yields in the bond market. So that's what yield curve control is. Sounds like a really funky term. Mm. Sounds complicated. Most people hear that and they just turn the podcast off. They think, I don't know what that is. Yield curve control, put in layman's terms, is the central bank is just printing money out of thin air. They're creating new money and they're literally buying government bonds. So what they're doing is when you buy a bond, you suppress the yields on that bond. So a bond, again, a bond's very complicated, okay? Mm. So a bond has a price and it has a yield. Essentially, the more people that want to buy a bond, the lower that pushes the yields. So if you see yields going lower and lower and lower, that means somebody's buying those bonds. So that's what the central bank is doing in Japan. They're buying the government bonds to push the yields on the Japanese government bonds lower so that they don't go bankrupt. Because nobody wants to buy Japanese bonds, if the central bank stepped away and let the free market go to where the free market wants to go, the Japanese bond, the Japanese bonds would be plummeting in value. So that means the yields would be going from zero to percent to two percent to four percent to ten percent, because nobody wants to buy that bond. Um, so that's a little bit of a long answer, but it looks as if Japan is currently in a crisis mode because it can't raise interest rates, capital's fleeing out of Japan, and the Japanese yen, the currency that they use over there, right now, it's at like a 22-year low measured against the dollar, and it's lost 21% of its value in the past 12 months measured against the dollar, and let's not forget, the dollar right now is officially losing 7% of its value per year. That's the official CPI inflation uh, metric. We all know that's wrong. We all know that they're lying to us and real inflation is actually more like 17%. Um, so when, when you're looking at the Japanese yen that's lost 20% of its value against the US dollar, 
you got to also remember the dollar's lost 15% of its value this year against goods and services. So if you're in Japan and you want to buy American real estate or American food or American goods and services, your your Japanese yen just lost 30 to 40% of its value in a year. So it looks as if Japan is about to join the other 51 countries who've defaulted on their debt loads and they look as if they're going to be the next domino to fall. That's crazy. It's it's so it's so crazy. And if you're just just a dude hanging out in Japan, you know, trying to get it done, and uh, and and you're you're competing. Your, your dollar is literally falling against the yen that you're denominating all your goods and like your purchases in. But then also you you you're getting fleeced again because the yen is denominated technically in the global reserve currency of the U.S. dollar, which is then technically you know um, denominated against actual goods and services in the real world that people. Um, try and allocate uh, their time and energy to acquire and uh, trade and so on and so forth. So it's, it, it, it's so unnecessarily complicated and obfuscated. Um, and I think it's, well, I mean, I say unnecessarily, it's clearly intentionally because this is a culture of economics, uh, uh, you know, that, that has evolved over quite a number of, of decades, maybe a century or more, and, you know, it, it's clearly the point of it is to just make people's eyes glaze over and, you know, um, and be like, yeah, cool, 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 cool. And because let's be honest, most people don't care. They just want to get on. They just want to try and unload as many rocks as they can each day without taking on any more and, um, and go home and chill with their friends or family. It's, it's, it's a pretty simple mo for most people and when people start talking about yield curve control and interest rates going up down whatever it's like fuck man i don't have the bandwidth for this to be honest you know i i, I got other shit to deal with and then that's how you get fleeced the the most that's when the thief in the night comes in and you turn around twice and it's mandibles you know um exactly <laughs> just just on that point about people getting fleeced in the night I think that's how the central banks and governments have gotten away with this Ponzi system for the past 50 years since 1971. It's because people just haven't had the time to care about money. 30% of people in America don't know that the US dollar is actually no longer backed by gold. There may actually be some people tuning in today that think the Australian dollar is still somehow redeemable for gold. And, and it's not. People just aren't taught about money in school because that's the game. If we don't know how the system works, the elites can get away with perpetrating theft onto the citizens. Um, so since inflation's been relatively low and moderate since 1971, they've actually gotten away with a lot of theft. So Jeff Booth puts it really nicely. He says, if a robber breaks into your house every night and steals 2% of your uh, belongings per year, um, you might not actually notice that 2% of your stuff is missing each year. But if that robber starts to break in and they're stealing 20 or 30 or 40% of your belongings each year, you might actually begin to recognize that there's somebody in your house stealing your knives and forks and tables and, and chairs. If, if you're a Bitcoiner, you shouldn't have you chairs. You shouldn't have chairs. I mean, I've got right. one. I've got one. <laughs> me too. Me too. But that's like... So I think a lot of people post-2020 are actually beginning to realize that something's not quite right with the monetary system. But before 2020, when inflation was only, you know, 2 or 3% per year, people didn't really, uh, they didn't really find the need to investigate um, what's going on with the monetary system because we're just told that 
2% inflation every single year is healthy and normal and part of a functioning economy. And it's not. It's propaganda. It's a lie. Um, it's, it's something we've never seen in human history. Um, so I think that's, that's something else I just wanted to raise. Um, the point about inflation and theft, um, 2020 has really woken up um, a lot of people because uh, the monetary uh, supply was expanded by like 40% in the span of uh, one year. And people are starting to see the price of goods and services go up by 20 and 30 and 40% per year. So they're starting to think, hang on a minute, something's not quite right. And um, it's uh, slowly people are trying to step out of the matrix and see what's wrong with the monetary system. Yeah, it's 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 insane. I mean, it, it's all a scam, really. I mean, Bitstein yeah. said it best. Everything's a, everyone's a scammer, and everything's a scam. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, you've kind of already answered this, but I, I kind of want to make it explicit. Why do you think you are open and able to discovering Bitcoin? Yeah, geez, it's it's a difficult one. I really like to think that everybody's going to be able to find Bitcoin. Um, well, it took me a long time. So I was like, uh, 2017 is not necessarily that early, I suppose, in finding Bitcoin. Um, I think at the time, um, I was partially aware to the fact that there was something wrong with the world. Um, and I think maybe I felt a little bit of financial pain. So if you look at countries like Argentina, Lebanon, Venezuela, um, the countries with the highest amount of inflation, um, or the most tyrannical governments, they've actually got the highest Bitcoin adoption rates. So especially people in the West, in the UK, America and Australia, um, you typically see lower rates of Bitcoin adoption and that's because they're under uh, the illusion that everything's okay and there's no need for them to look into Bitcoin. So I think necessity is a really big thing. People will find Bitcoin uh, when it's a necessity for them um, like for me, I was homeless when I was 17. I had no dollars to my name. So it was always a necessity for me to be a frugal saver and kind of try to learn a little bit about money. Um, and that obviously began like the property investing rabbit hole. And yeah, so I think that's what led me personally um, to finding Bitcoin. And I think obviously there's all these different aspects to Bitcoin. You can find it from a, a monetary necessity you can find it from a freedom necessity. So there's obviously in Canada, there was the uh, the freedom protests. So the truckers weren't happy that a government decided um, what was mandated to be put into somebody's body. So they simply went out there in their trucks and they said, hey, look, this is not fair. This, this thing does not have... I'll be very careful of what I say. I don't want to get your uh, podcast taken down. But the truckers were saying, we believe that something might not be fair here. So we're going to protest it because it's our body, our choice. That's what the truckers were saying. Um, and the truckers learned very quickly that they had all their bank accounts frozen by the government um, if, if they simply were protesting in what's supposed to be the fifth most democratic country in the world. Canada was rated as the fifth best democracy in the world pre-2021. And like, so you can find Bitcoin from a monetary necessity, but then you can also find Bitcoin from like a freedom necessity. You might come to the realization like the Canadian truckers did that you need to have some sort of free speech. And the only way you can have free speech and freedom is if you have freedom money, you need to have fuck you money if you want to actually have a say. Um, so there's, and like I think like the more disagreeable people will also be predisposed to 
finding Bitcoin. So there's all these different rabbit holes or ways that can lead one to finding Bitcoin. Me personally, it was just a, an economic necessity. Yeah, it, it, it's so it's so fascinating to me, and that's part of the remit of this podcast is to just um, discover how people or find out, you know, learn how people have discovered Bitcoin for themselves from all these different angles. And the economic incentives are, are massive, obviously, and a lot of people come in for the gains and then stay for the freedom, and others, you know, um, sort of find it in in other routes. So it's it's going to be very fascinating um, to hear all these stories. How has discovering Bitcoin changed you? In many different ways, many, many different ways. Um, I think the biggest way for me is I was probably a little bit nihilistic before finding Bitcoin. Um, so I kind of, you know, I knew something was wrong in the world. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Like I, I kind of enjoyed personal training. Like it was, it was a good excuse to be, you know, you know, health, healthy and fit. And I've always loved sports. So I enjoyed personal training. I enjoyed helping people. Um, that was probably the biggest thing for me. Like if you put someone on a 12 week fat loss diet and you watch them, you know, lose 10% of their body, their body weight there, um, their, that impacts their self-confidence and their mood and their motivation. So that was the biggest thing for me. I personally enjoyed, um, helping people. Um, so I've always kind of enjoyed that aspect of Bitcoin. So that's kind of, um, that's what I'm really, uh, that's what I'm very passionate about Bitcoin. Bitcoin gave me a purpose. So, so like apart from the personal training business I ran before Bitcoin, I was a little bit like, didn't know what I was doing in my life, a little bit nihilistic, a little bit, you know, just jumping from thing to thing. But when you find Bitcoin, it's like finding, I found, I felt like I found my purpose. So, um, like I've been working seven, seven days a week for the past two years, like 14 hours a day in the Bitcoin space. Like I have five different plates every single minute of what I do because I think fixing the money is the biggest problem the world is facing today. Like I said, um, how money's never been more broken than it has in 5,000 years. And I think people really need to sit down and think about that for a minute, like, our monetary system is absolutely broken. Something like 30% of the world is unbanked. There's 1.8 billion people around the world who are unbanked and don't have access to a bank account. And like, there's lots of people, there's millions, there's billions of people in Africa and Latin America today who are starving to death every single year, literally starving to death. Something like one in eight people are living in extreme poverty. And that isn't because these people don't work hard. It's because they work hard, but they don't have a money to store their life savings in because the government in Latin America and Africa tend to be a little bit more tyrannical. Um, so they just, instead of inflating the money supply by 5 or 10% sneakily, like what's done in Australia and America and in the West, in Africa, they just say, no, screw it. We're going to increase it by 50%. We're, gonna, we're just going to debase your savings at 50% per year. We don't care. We are dictators. We are going to do what we want. Um, so I think like fixing the money and giving every single person on planet Earth a savings account that doesn't discriminate against them because of the country they're born in, because of their race, because of their color or because of their identity, I think that's the purpose. Like that's the goal. That's what I'm really passionate about trying to accelerate. I want to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization because I think the fact that the money is broken. I think that's the biggest problem. That's the, like for me, 
that is the biggest problem by a, an order of magnitude in the world today. So I'm since finding Bitcoin, I'm I'm pretty dedicated on trying to dedicate my life to solving what I think is the biggest problem in the world today, and that is defunding tyrannical central bankers and governments who think that they can just um, extract people's wealth at 20 or 30% per year. Because for me, it's implicit slavery. The mm. world today is living in implicit sl- slavery. Um, like, let's let's pretend you're in California. Tax rates, something like, let's say, 40 to 50% per year. Let's say that's conservative. If inflation's 20% in California every year, that means all of a sudden 70% of your wages every single year is being inflated away from you. So you could be working like 50 hours a week and like 40 hours of that is going straight to the government, either in inflation or taxes. So it's literal slavery, the way the monetary system works today. Um, I think Henry Ford said it best in the early 20th century, in 1910 or 1912. Henry Ford said, if the everyday person understood how the monetary system worked, there'd be a revolution by tomorrow morning. Totally. And that's that's just that's so that so that's how bitcoin's changed me it's um it's it's motivated me a lot it's given me purpose in my life um and then obviously when you find out that uh the government is lying to you about the money and you get on bitcoin twitter and you start engaging with all of these crazy psychopathic uh carnivore bitcoin maximalists who tell you to go down all of these other different rabbit holes you find out that hang on a minute the government isn't just lying to us about the money. They're lying to us about the educational system, the healthcare system, the nutritional system. They're lying to us about everything. So for me, I've actually, um, I'm obviously been a car. I, um, I've been on like the carnivore and like a keto diet for the past three or four years. I think I've lost like 15 or 20 pounds. Um, I pretty much just don't eat carbohydrates anymore. So from a health aspect as well, I've never been healthier um, I've never had more focus and uh, than I than I have since going keto and carnivore. Um, I just didn't realize how bad carbohydrates were for us. And um, the only reason I found that was through Bitcoin because mm. Bitcoin teaches you don't trust, verify. And mm. I was I was indoctrinated with all sorts of propaganda um, at university in like um, these biochemistry courses because uh, you have to take all of these uh, anatomy courses and uh, human physiology courses and they tell you carbohydrates are good for you. You should be eating 12 servings of carbohydrates a day. It's the, it's the fuel of your body and they tell you, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You've got to eat your breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you sort of break down nutrition to first principles, you come to the realisation that uh, humans – uh, biologically over the past millions of years, um, we haven't eaten carbohydrates. We mm. only really started eating carbohydrates um, when the ag- agricultural revolution started to come around in around 10,000 years ago. So uh, Bitcoin's changed me a lot. That was a bit of a long answer, but no, it's, it's changed. It's, <laughs> it's so yeah, good, it's man. Changed. Like it changes, it changes. As you said, you, you touch on all of these other little rabbit holes as you um, – connect to this network of individuals who have got their own passions and their own discoveries and then they're sort of they've done the bitcoin rabbit hole and they've got to a certain point in that in that journey where they're able to sort of look back to the surface a little bit and start bringing in aspects of their own lives that they were interested in before bitcoin and then they can frame it up um 
with a Bitcoin lens. And it's it's endlessly fascinating to me that a, a, a what is effectively just a, a, a protocol um, running running on 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 you know on a network uh, can can influence individuals in in such a way that they just um, it's made me think of all all of the things that I'm interested in prior to Bitcoin. It's just completely reframed them and given it so much more clarity. And and you were saying like your entire diet has changed, and there's there's, there's lots of people out there that have had similar sort of um, experiences. And it, and it's just it's just a protocol for value exchange for value transfer between individuals. It's 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 remarkable to me that something like that, a technology, can have such a massive impact on an individual, on a person. You know? Yes, it is. It's absolutely crazy how Satoshi Nakamoto just released seven pages of a white paper in 2008 saying that he had created uh, digital cash for the world and solved the double spending problem. And all of a sudden, it's just these lines of code that was anonymously released to the internet via a mailing list is now fundamentally changing our entire world. We have nation states adopting this thing only as it's 13 years old, they're adopting this thing that was just released into the world in 2008. They're adopting it as legal tender. So in El Salvador, Bitcoin is legal tender. In the Central Africa Republic, uh, Bitcoin is legal tender. Um, There's a city in Switzerland, Bitcoin is legal tender. You have public corporations that are run by multi-billionaires are literally buying Bitcoin, putting it on their balance sheet as a treasury reserve asset. Uh, like Michael Saylor with MicroStrategy became the first public company to buy Bitcoin and he didn't just buy Bitcoin. He went balls deep. Mm. He put his entire company's balance sheet into Bitcoin and since then he's leveraged himself up and got uh, taken out billions of dollars of US dollar debt to buy Bitcoin. Uh, You have the richest man in the world buying Bitcoin. You have countries like Nigeria where there is enormous inflation, enormous tyrannical government measures, and 40% of the country is using Bitcoin every single day in Nigeria. So it's, it's and obviously on the personal level, it, Bitcoin is fundamentally changing people's lives. And it's, it's absolutely wild to think that in just 14 years of this thing, this, this, this digital thing, this digital mm. energy money being released into the world, it is already fundamentally transforming the world in such wild ways. I can't even begin to fathom what impact Bitcoin is going to have on the world in 50 years' time. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It, it really, really is. I mean, my follow-up question to that is, you know, what have you learned about the world and about yourself since discovering Bitcoin? Hmm, this is a good question. Because um, these are the kind of questions you just don't think about before you're in Bitcoin. Um, boy, it opened up my eyes to um, all sorts of things uh, Bitcoin Bitcoin did. Um, like obviously it wakes you up to the fact that the entire monetary system um, is a scam, is a farce, and it's, um, it's, it's just everything we see in the world, it's just a clown show. So like... Bitcoin teaches you don't trust verify and you soon learn that everything you're being told on the TV is a lie. Everything you're being told on the radio is a lie and it's all a lie to benefit the richest people in the world 
and it's 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 um so it it taught me some some dark things about the world but it also taught me that you know that there's hope we have a solution to um create potentially what is going to be like a 21st century renaissance i think like i always call bitcoin the digital printing press not the best analogy but i think uh 500 years ago when the printing press was created it uh created a fundamental change in society so it actually enabled the separation of the church and the state and what followed was when the printing press was invented and books were able to be transcribed into all sorts of languages around the world it gave the everyday person more information it gave them decentralized democratized information and when they got that new information they kind of started to poke holes in the power structure of the church and the state and i think bitcoin's going to do the exact same thing today but instead of a church and a state i think bitcoin's going to separate money from state so for 5000 years we've used gold as money on or off but because gold's very easy to centralize into the hands of a few um gold's always been able to be co-opted so emperors would either cut the um the edges off the gold coins or today um we're um stuck using these paper receipts called fiat money so australian dollars or us dollars that are now no longer backed by gold so our biggest problem over the past 5000 years is the fact that uh the state has always been able to monopolize the money supply. Uh so I think Bitcoin for the first time in 5000 years is going to actually create the separation from money and state. Um and I think the same way that using a hard money created the renaissance in the 1600s, I think we're going to see a 21st century renaissance and uh potentially what I believe is going to be the most important revolution um in human history. Mm. Yeah, it's it's going to it's it I mean it's already if you know where to look it's already unlocking so many incredible things um that people are, are spending their time and energy on um i mean that's that's the thing i really enjoy is is having that ability to or confidence to um to allocate time and energy to allocate resources um to other things that you may be interested in because you know that you don't have to constantly slog every single day on some bullshit task or whatever and you can actually, you know, spend a bit of time in the evenings pursuing that passion or you know whatever it is, you know, you, you have that confidence to just um free up a little bit of time and energy in yourself personally to to work on yourself personally and to go out and maybe create something that is quite valuable to somebody else and then, you know, that kind of just uh spirals out really in out of, out of control. Um, and those kind of things compound as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people, when I say Bitcoin's going to create a modern renaissance in the 21st century, I, I wouldn't mind adding some color to that because I think a lot of us are underestimating the potential of Bitcoin and just how fundamentally it is going to transform society. Um, so for for literally tens of thousands of years, society was just living in farms. where we toiled away and we would you know plant our grains of rice and barley and you know all of this crap so since the industrial we were sorry since the agricultural revolution we just lived in farms for 10,000 years and it wasn't until the industrial revolution in the 1770s that we actually started to advance as a civilization when we started to 
use more energy, we started to create all of these fundamental technologies. So obviously in the 1770s, we um, saw the invention of uh, the steam engine. We got the invention of uh, railways, the steam engine that led to the invention of steel, which gave us electricity, which then we ended up finding a more dense form of energy than coal, which was oil. That gave us um, the invention of automobiles later on. Um, and like, just think back to how much technological progress the world has seen in the past 300 years. And that was all created on the foundation of uh, property rights and using more energy. So I think the separation of money, uh, sorry, the separation of church and state in the 1500s led, led uh, kind of laid the, uh, the bedrock for the um, American Revolution in the 1770s. And once you kind of had those property rights, capitalists were allowed to innovate. Capitalists had the time and energy and money to innovate. And the amount of progress that we've seen in 300 years to go from farms to living in these mega cities, getting on planes, traveling to the other side of the world, it's ridiculous. It is absolutely wild. And I think that it's its really interesting. I don't know if the listeners are familiar with a thesis um, called The Great Stagnation, but it's a really interesting thesis. I think it was originally popularized by uh, Peter Cohen um, in his book, The Great Stagnation. And he just kind of points out that, hey, for the past 300 years, we've seen this enormous technological growth and improvement in our physical world. But since the 1970s, things have kind of been stagnating. And like in the book, he talks about everything from uh, the average plane hasn't really gotten any better since the 1970s. Um, obviously, food's pretty much, well, that's stagnated since the 1970s, um, as well as... Yeah, it's got oh, yeah. worse. It's full of shit now. So, and and people eat it like like it, it's actual real food. It's no okay. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> exactly. No, you're right. One hundred percent true. Um, and the uh, the max uh, speed of an airplane has also stagnated since 1970. Um, so it's really interesting. We're seeing this stagnation in the physical world. And something else that correlates um, in the 1970s, we didn't just depeg our money from gold. Um, in 1971, something else really interesting happened in 1971. Um, we actually began using less energy as a civilization for the first time in 300 years. Um, so there's a curve called the Henry Adams curve, and it shows that since the 1700s, when we first had that industrial revolution, we found coal as an energy source and we started using that more energy-dense fuel source for things. Um, we, as a civilization, we've been using an exponentially more amount of energy per capita for 300 years until 1970. And energy, energy usage per capita stagnated in the 1970s. Um, so I think Bitcoin kind of fixes two problems there and it kind of kills two birds with one stone because Bitcoin fixes the money. So now people are allowed to actually free up their time and go out there and innovate and create a modern renaissance. They're, um, they're going to have the time to create all of these enormously beautiful and transformative technologies that we could certainly get into. Um, but Bitcoin does another thing. It incentivizes our civilization to use more energy. And that is something we really need to do. This entire ESG movement that we're living through today is modern suicide. It's literally a, a controlled demolition of Western civilization. 
the reason that we've gone from farms to megacities in 250 years is because we've used an exponentially more amount of energy. Um, the fact that the globalists and the elites in all sorts of non-government organisations like the World Economic Forum think that they can just tell us to stop using energy and it's going to be fine, it's going to have no consequence, I think that's really dangerous. Um, we're seeing the consequences of that in countries like Sri Lanka, who were previously the poster boy for um, ESG policies. They had a near-perfect ESG score. They had a 98.1 out of 100 ESG score. They were rated the most ESG-friendly country in the world in 2021. And we can see what happened in Sri Lanka because they were following those ESG policies. They've gone from a net agricultural exporter to having a food crisis where millions of people are now starving in Sri Lanka. So they're no longer exporting food. They now don't have enough food to feed their own population. And they also don't have the money to import energy. So they're having rolling blackouts. Um, and inflation is 120% per year now in Sri Lanka. All because they their prime minister teamed up with good old Klaus Schwab over at the World Economic Forum. And he said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to introduce all of these ESG frameworks. We're going to use less energy. We're going to ban chemical fertilizers. We're going to become ESG friendly. And what happened was a, an absolute humanitarian crisis. Um, and the same thing's happening in Europe today. Mm. They are the, the region that most aggressively tried to demonize fossil fuels and transition to uh, wind and solar, unreliable forms of energy. And Europe's found out pretty quickly that when the sun ain't shining and the wind ain't blowing, you can't keep the lights on, buddy. So um, energy prices in Europe have skyrocketed. They're up five, six, seven hundred percent. So I think the fact that Bitcoin not only fixes the money, but it fixes the energy as well, because Bitcoin miners are now going out there and incentivizing the build out of renewable energy. And they're also capturing um, waste in the form of like uh, natural gas that's normally burnt into the atmosphere. Um, I think that's really it's it's like the the implications that Bitcoin's going to have on the world. I cannot even begin to conceptualize. Uh, what they are going to be, but I think it's going to fundamentally transform our world in ways we don't even know. If you had uh, you know, a time machine, you could go back to that uh, kid that got kicked, you know, was homeless in seven, in, uh, at 17, entrepreneurial mindset, um, you know, sets up a personal training business, starts to try and figure out, okay, uh, I need to make some money, I've got to save up for a deposit for a house, Let's figure out how housing markets work, this kind of thing. If you had, a, you could go back and, and, and look at that kid and, and, and say, in, in a few years' time, like four or five years' time, you're going to be talking about energy, you're going to be talking about inflation, you're going to be talking about all of these disparate things that are simply not tied to someone's conception of what a, phys, a, a personal trainer is, right? <laughs> Like I see a personal trainer, I'm like the last thing I'm thinking that they're going to start talking to me about is is like monetary policy and um, global <laughs> inflation rates and and just exactly. going to rattle off these these stats at the top of their head. There's no way, and that's so fascinating to me that uh, it, it's all because you've you've passed through this this rabbit hole that we call Bitcoin, and it's opened your eyes to all of these things that are interconnected and interoperable with one another. But we're so siloed as individuals because it's like, well, no, Luke Mikic, he's a, um, he's a personal trainer. You should go to him mm -hmm. if you want to lose some weight, not to get, um, you know, um, 
non-official fidu- like what, what what's the word you know um fiduciary e- responsibility e- yeah ramblings from an economic terrorist yeah but it's, <laughs> it's, it's so cool man because now you've actually built a life off the back of that through discovering bitcoin in in this way and i, I find that just extraordinary that um you know we, we were at this conference a couple of uh, about a month ago and every single person in the room you couldn't put them in a group. You couldn't put them in a group. You go to the pub, you can see a bunch of footy boys sitting over in the corner. They all play for the local team. You could probably see all the, all the, the bookish nerds, etc. you know, on their LAN parties or whatever. Every single one of those people was just in this room enthralled by these talks about Bitcoin. It was, mm. you, know, you could walk past them in the street and you wouldn't even know unless they had some sort of, you know, cap on or, or T-shirt that, that indicated that they were somehow into bitcoin or something it, it, it's just amazing how do you explain bitcoin to people how do you try and orange kill them i start very simple i say bitcoin is money that works um i first always have to try and convince somebody that there's a problem because most people don't understand that there's a problem with the money they're using today so that's where i'll normally start um I'll say, don't you think it's weird that petrol prices just went up by 30% last year? And this was before Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. So no, prices of petrol didn't go up because of Putin's price hike. Um, Or I'll point to the fact that food has gone up by 30% in the past year. And I just like to ask people, why do you think that's normal? And typically, you know, they don't have a response and that's, you know, my foot's in the door. And I start uh, shoving that orange peel down their throat. So I, I always, <laughs> I have to convince them there's a problem first. And when I meet someone new about, um, and I try to teach them about Bitcoin, I teach them the very simple basics. I say Bitcoin is the only money in human history that has a cap supply. So there's only 21 million Bitcoin. You can't print anymore. Something else I'll teach them about Bitcoin is I'll say Bitcoin is the first monetary system in human history that has a set of rules that can't be changed by a set of non-elected rulers. And even better, Bitcoin has no rulers. So nobody can change the rules in Bitcoin. It is money with rules set by rules, no rulers. So that's something else I really like to drive home. Um, and money, Bitcoin is peer-to-peer. So I like to draw home the fact that I can send money to somebody else without a bank in the middle. And I can send that value anonymously to someone in Nigeria, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, I can send value to somebody on the other side of the world. And there's no government who can stop me sending value to anybody around the world. So I think the stat is something like 70% of people in the world are living under authoritarian regimes. So in, in a lot of those authoritarian regimes, the dictators don't allow their people to um, firstly have the internet um, or even have like a, um, uh, or have a bank account, obviously. So if you try to send them gold or dollars, the government's going to take all of it at the border. Um, like I, was, I met a guy from Cuba just recently um, at a Bitcoin meetup here in El Salvador at the um, Adopting Bitcoin conference, and I learned that they only got internet four years ago in Cuba. That's, that's wild, absolutely that's wild. wild. But yeah, so anyway, I'll, I'll reel myself back in. I focus on the basics. Bitcoin is peer-to-peer money. Nobody can stop a Bitcoin transaction. In 13 years, nobody has been able to censor a Bitcoin transaction or stop it. It is absolutely immutable. It is 
fuck you money. It is unfuckable. Bitcoin is also a money that is um, based upon rules and not rulers. Um, there is no central bankers in Bitcoin who can print new Bitcoins out of thin air. That's something that we've never discovered before in human history. And Bitcoin is also the creation of digital scarcity. So it's 21 million Bitcoin. There'll never be any more. So they're the three things I really focus on if I'm trying to orange pill a new person. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it is easier said than done, really, because you find yourself tripping up over all of these concepts that you don't have to unpack and so on and so forth. So it, it, it is one of those things. But I think with practice and time, you know, um, it, it's it's entirely possible. And, and everyone eventually will discover Bitcoin and will have this similar hero's journey where they'll adopt it into their life and it will just make their life better. I mean, it, it really does. It, it's a net net, net positive. Like it really is. It's just, it just makes your life better. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing over there in El Salvador, what you're doing in the macro space and uh, where people can, uh, can find you. Yeah, so haven't been back to Australia in a year and I'm absolutely loving every minute of it. Uh, so I've been in El Salvador for three months now. Um, lots of Bitcoiners around here. Beautiful weather year-round. Beautiful beaches. Um, and as they've taught me over here, there's uh, grande olas and bonita playas. That's uh, big waves, beautiful beaches. And as I like to say, there's big booty Latinas over here. So I can't complain. <laughs> it's a beautiful country. Um, what I'm doing, I'm full-time in the Bitcoin space. Um, I work with a Bitcoin-only educational company called CoinBeast. Uh, so we help people take custody of their Bitcoin, take it off exchanges, we help them run nodes or um, also any sorts of technical issues they have. We we connect them with Bitcoin pros who can help them out. Um, I'm also working with um, another uh, Australian Bitcoin-only company, so that's Amber. Um, we, I also send people to Amber where they can uh, stack Bitcoin. Um, they can actually get $10 of free Bitcoin if they um, use use a link that I'm sure we might be able to chuck in the show notes for listeners today. They want $10 of free it, Bitcoin. 100%. There we go. Um, so I write lots of articles for Amber. I write newsletters for Amber. Um, I'm full-time at Coinbeast, just building out a YouTube channel for them. I uh, dropped an interview with Preston Pish today, actually, on the Coinbeast YouTube channel. I have my own personal YouTube channel. Um, I also co-host another YouTube channel. over. At, that's That one's called Bitcoin Made Simple. Um, I, I write full-time for uh, Mark Moss. Um, so I can actually see his book on, uh, I won't dox you, but I think I can see it in the background of uh, your bookshelf there, yeah, The man. Uncommunist Manifesto. So I also, I've been writing and researching for Mark for the past 12 months and he was actually the fella who initially got me out of Australia. Um, so I needed an excuse to leave um, due to my medical status in 2022 and Mark said, hey, look, he's got a job with me. Let's get the boy out of Australia. So he was the uh, he was the one who rescued me from the open-air prison initially. Oh, so I wear many hats in the Bitcoin space. If you want to send me some hate mail or tell me I'm crazy, you can hit me up on Twitter. Um, I think a thank you would be more apropos, to be honest. Uh, the, 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 the thanks should be all mine. Um, I'm really glad to come on your podcast and uh, talk to you face-to-face. It's been an absolute pleasure and i love talking about bitcoin and i just hope that somebody out there got some sort of value from my rambling and ranting and raving today um because if we can orange build one person uh that's a good day yeah man look i got lots of value and uh i always appreciate people sharing their time and energy with me discussing 
uh, how Bitcoin has impacted them and then their lives. And, you know, just understanding the origin story, the genesis story of how they discovered uh, Bitcoin because it is endlessly fascinating. It's, it's almost universal, but there are individual nuances within that. And, um, you know, you and I have connected uh, in the past in other uh, aspects of our lives, but um, it's actually been a real joy to speak, you, speak with you uh, for this particular length of time about this particular subject. So um, appreciate your time and energy, man, and thank you so much. Anytime at all. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute blast. Just...